Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, March 6th, 2021, and this is the weekly market update. Short disclaimer, nothing that you hear on this video or podcast is investment advice. Do your own research as it's your money. All right, in this week's reality check, got uh, a few reader emails and messages, a lot around the recent moves that we've seen in a lot of the resource stocks. As you know, the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter has just been going nuts as far as the returns we've been seeing in a lot of the holdings. Why? Well, we are focused on things that are out of favor and undervalued, and currently that uh, was the resource commodity sector. Um, and we had a view that uh, at some point, because of the lack of investment that would turn around, that's now happened. So we've got a lot of uh, emails and recent subscribers, quite a few actually. And people are saying, wow, these things have really moved. Is it over? What should I do? This is pretty typical, like, this is just, these aren't like actual messages. This is just like kind of the putting them all together. I missed the initial liftoff in the oil trade. Have I missed the trade? When would be a good time to buy? No, you haven't missed it. I mean, obviously it would have been better to buy six months ago or, you know, right after the crash. Uh, but no, you haven't missed it. Why do I say that? Well, I mean, you can even, for example, a, a company I've talked about on this show in the recent past, Suncor, which is a very large Canadian uh, oil sands upgrader in Canada. They also have a refining component. So it's a very large company. Um, it's a large cap. Uh, actually, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett has a, a position in that. But if you look at the current share price, it's still well below where, um, where it was when oil was trading at its $65 a barrel before the COVID inspired crash. So that's just one example right now. Do I think it's being held back a little bit? Yes, because you know, the media talks about pipeline issues and all these things. Also, the company has some, um, they put on some hedges at lower prices. They're not going to, they're not getting the full effect of the rising oil prices, but they, they are getting some effects. So uh, that's just one example. And you know, these things, when they initially blast off the bottoms, I mean, when you were buying these things at basically giveaway prices because of all the media hype around, you know, the oil industry is going away, ESG, we're going to all be driving electric cars next year, you know, that contributed to the sell-off. And, you know, a lot of the things that were holding the oil price back are now dissipating. The shale situation uh, got decimated. We've seen most of the shale companies are holding to the line of saying that they're going to try to live within their cash flow and not go out and borrow money. I mean, that's what they were doing, right? They borrowed hundreds of billions of dollars, put it into the ground, and then basically had negative cash flow and no earnings. So they said they're going to change. We'll see as the oil price goes up. I anticipate it's going to go a lot higher going forward over the rest of this year and into next year. As a matter of fact, I believe that once the economies come back and they're starting to now, as we've seen many, many states in the U.S. lift uh, COVID restrictions, uh, 
mostly uh, red states, Republican states. You're going to see more of that as the spring and summer comes along. And I'm projecting that oil demand in the world will be higher than it was pre-COVID. Why? Because in order for economies to grow, they need energy. And whether people like it or not, that currently means hydrocarbons. But no, you haven't missed it. So a lot of the stocks have moved and a lot of them are overbought. So you should take a look at a chart, you know, use stock charts. Just the basic chart that you put up can show you moving averages, the 50 day, the 200 day, it'll show you the stock price in relation to those. So if you're trading well above those trend, those uh, moving averages, you can expect a pullback. I mean, even in a bull market, you're gonna have pullbacks, right? So we're in a bull market. So what should be done in a bull market is you should buy the dips. So that's my suggestion. Uh, you don't have to throw all your money in. You don't have to panic. Don't get FOMO. You missed the initial blast off, which was a good move. Some of these stocks moved a couple hundred percent already, but it's not over. And like I said, even some of the large caps are still priced lower than they were doing before the, or the last time oil traded at its current level of around 65, whatever it's trading at today. And so, uh, yeah, you haven't missed it. Uh, buy the dip. That's what you do in bull markets. And we're in a bull market until, you know, further notice. Uh, don't expect that you're going to get some huge pullback, though, 50%. Some of the juniors could pull back, you know, more than, more than average on a pullback. I mean, nothing goes straight up, right? So, but, you know, if you're thinking out a year, two, three years, uh, or at least a couple years, I think that uh, if you buy on some dips, uh, you, you would probably be okay. Um, same thing, you know, I've got the same discussion around uranium stocks. Everybody wants to get into uranium stocks now, right? It's the hot thing. Everybody kind of sees the obvious and more capital starting to come in, you know? And one of the things somebody asked me was, well, uranium stocks have soared. How do you know when to sell? And first of all, we're nowhere near the end of the bull markets in these industries of oil and oil and gas and uranium. Um, how do I know when to sell? Well, I've talked about this before, and I guess it requires me to get into it again, uh, which I will. You have to have a plan. You have to have an investment plan. You have to write that down. What are you trying to achieve? In the context of writing this plan for yourself, you have to do some self-introspection. How much risk are you able to take on? If you're going to lie awake in bed, staring at the ceiling, sweating and getting a uh, upset stomach because a stock that you bought dropped 30 or 40%, regardless if the fundamentals changed, you probably shouldn't be investing in the stock market at all. A lot of things that, that I am talking about are out of favor, contrarian, things that are deep value. And sometimes it takes, well, not sometimes, just about all the time, it takes a lot longer for these things to turn around than even I think. And I'm very patient at this point in my life. I mean, I used to have the FOMO. I used to, I'm going to miss out. I'd throw my whole wad in on something. I wouldn't, you know, scale in and very in tranches. I would just, you know, and then, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd buy at a, an immediate top, get, you know, have a 20% correction and then, you know, be all bummed out and, you know, sell out. And then the thing would recover because you're in a bull market and I would be, you know, upset. So if you want, you know, let's, let's use some, let's use some sports analogies. Where do I think we are in, in both of these markets? I don't know, top of the first inning in a nine inning ball game. I mean, that's where you're at. 
These things have a long way to go. So I wouldn't even be thinking about selling. What I would be thinking about doing is how to put new money to work if I had it. And that would be, like I said before, scaling in on any type of pullbacks. You should have, but you should have a plan, you know? You should understand what your risk tolerance is in the plan. What's your level of knowledge? Be, you know, if you're a newbie, you know, you're going to have, you got a lot of catching up. You got to do some work. That doesn't mean you should just sit out, but, you know, maybe you shouldn't be investing in um, or speculating in, that's what you're really doing in a lot of these uranium stocks. I mean, let's just be honest here, guys. There's one investable company in the uranium sector. That's Kaz Adamprom. It's the only company that actually has earnings. Okay. Even Cameco doesn't really have earnings, right? And the rest of them are speculations as to whether they will ever produce any revenue or cash flow. That's from an investment perspective. You have to designate between investing and speculating. Speculating, speculating is far riskier. That means you have to put the time in. You have to understand what you're doing. You have to create this thesis, understand it. And if it's in play, then you have to go and look at, you know, how many, you know, uranium mining is a very specialized industry, right? So at the peak of the last uranium bull market, there were 500 uranium companies. At the start of the last bull market, there were two or three, I think two originally, two or three publicly traded uranium companies. At the peak, there were 500. Were there actually 500 competent uranium uh, mining or uranium, uh, uh, you know, skilled teams out there? No. It's the same thing in all these industries. They have the same in Toronto and in Vancouver when the ducks quack feed them. So, you know, now we've got about maybe 50 trade names that trade out there that are in the uranium business. I say that with quotations, but one of them's only investable and that's Kaz Adamprom. The rest are speculations. You need to understand that. And then if you're not able to do the research or if you don't know the research, then you're going to have to get some advice. Who would I get advice from? Okay, well, Justin Hune has a newsletter, Uranium Insider on Twitter. I don't subscribe to it, but I've had a lot of conversations with him and he seems to be switched on and he's done fairly well uh, in his newsletter. I have a few picks in my newsletter. If you, you know, there's ETFs out there. If you understand the general top of the, you know, the general overview, the 30,000 foot view of uranium, where uranium is going and you understand that and you think that that's a cogent, correct argument for higher uranium prices, then just buy the ETF, scale into it over time, dollar cost average into it. That's an option. That's probably the best idea for most of you guys. But what people think is they see a tweet or they see the story about mega uranium during the last uh, bull market that went up 10,000% or they hear the story about Rick Rule and Paladin and they think they're going to pick that, that stock, right? The chances of you doing that are very low. So, but that doesn't mean, you know, it's like setting realistic expectations. Another thing that I harp on, you know, the average return over 50 or hundred years in the stock market with dividends reinvested is about 9%. And so somebody's going to sneeze at a couple hundred percent return because they caught the wave on, you know, what, you know, and, and, and they expect it, that that's normal or a thousand percent, a 10 baggers not, is not that, you know, read Chris Mayer's book about hundred baggers. They're not, they're not that common. 10 baggers are not that common. You know, uh, think more like a Tony Gwynn or Rod Carew. You know, you want to be a high average hitter. You want to, you know, you can make a very nice career. The difference between a 300 hitter in baseball and a 275 hitter in baseball is about $10 million a year in salary. If you get my meaning. So, uh, 
what I'm trying to tell you is, is that uh, you haven't missed it. Don't panic. Don't try to get FOMO. Calm down. Get your biases under control and then create a plan. Okay. How much capital do you have? How concentrated are you, are, you, are you willing to be? Do you understand the investment thesis sufficiently? You should write it down. Your understanding of the uranium supply demand or the thesis for why uranium is going up and write it down. Then you should revisit it on a regular basis. Is it still intact? Because that will help you determine later on, which is another question, when to sell. And this is, you know, this bullet point I want to bring up. Investing and speculating is a personal journey. It, it's what works for John isn't going to necessarily work for you. I have a different education level, experience level. I've been around this a long time. My connections are probably different. I've already got the battle scars. My risk tolerance could be different. Everything's different. So it's going to be different for each person. The answer is always going to be different. And I can't just give you... Here it is, guys. Here's the Holy Grail. Just here's this book of wisdom. I can publish it, you know, and charge you, you know, $49.95 and you'll, you know, you're set. That's just not how it is. That's why this game is harder than people think. But it's not impossible. It's not a bad thing. You just got to do some thinking on this. And people don't want to think. I mean, people would rather just be told. I tell the story. You know, in my younger days, in my 20s, early 30s, I was involved in greyhound racing. Um, various investment syndicates, we would uh, have interest in various dogs or bloodlines. I kind of regret it now. It's kind of a not a very good industry to be involved with. But anyways, uh, I never really gambled on, well, I'd go to the track and watch my dogs race. If there was a stakes race, one of them was in, I'd go there, you know, it was fun to do with the other owners or people involved. You know, and maybe I'd put $2 on to win i wasn't really but there was these people there and they sell these like pamphlets right uh tip sheets or whatever you know tout sheets and somebody you know because these people are like degenerate gamblers right they just want to somebody give me the holy grail so i can put turn two thousand you know a two dollar quinella into you know or hit the superfecta for four grand you know and all my problems will go away it's not, that's not how it works, man. It's really not going to work that. And I see these people, and I was just like, this is not good. But you see the same thing in these markets, right? People chasing the shiny objects, people looking for the easy way all the time. That's just human nature. And you have to fight against that. I went through that in my investing career. You got to fight through it. You got to overcome it because it will, it will, it will tear you up. It will lower your returns. It will keep you from uh, being successful in this game. Again, what are your goals? What's your risk tolerance? You know, what's the ap your aptitude at this game? Like I said before, I mean, I can't forget which great investor said this, but he said he talked about like all the analysts he has, all the resources he has, all the connections he has, and you're competing against that. And you're working a 40-hour job, then coming home and working on your house and playing with your kids and then, you know, spending time with your spouse or whatever, and then you're going to go and like invest. So I think, you know, getting a theme correct and saying, yes, I think oil prices are going higher, or I think uranium is going to go higher. And this is why I agree that this is, thesis is correct. Just buy an ETF. That's the easiest way to do it. You're not going to get the big returns, but you're not going to miss the move either. And it takes the burden of doing that deep research or find a, some, some people 
you know, get on Twitter. That's why I tell people get on Twitter and cultivate a uh, follow people that are smart. You, you over time, you can see that their calls are correct. And you could start understanding, you can start interacting with them. Like, why, why do you think this is going up? You said that you, know, you were correct. But you know, what was your thinking? People interact there in FinTwit. And there's a lot of smart people create your own analyst community, make reach out, have connections. So what do I do? Well, I enter and exit positions over time, right? So when I feel like I find a sector, let's just use like the oil sector. I just didn't take a bunch of investable funds and throw it all in at once. I started identifying companies that I thought were going to benefit. Uh, and then I start scaling into the position. You know, I, I buy a tranche and then uh, I, I watch what goes on. Um, and then, you know, I might add to that. Okay, I double down if I think that, uh, you know, if the price drops back, but the fundamentals aren't changing, I'll add more. You know, if it's in a rising trend and, you know, like the price is just taken off, you know, uh, but I don't, I'm not forced to, right? I don't have to chase it. Okay. And then I don't have to get bummed out if I buy a position on my first tranche and the stock drops 20%. Cause that's, that, that does happen more than more often than not, especially in these bombed out industries. You buy, hasn't done anything for three years or it's been down for several years or many years. And you're sitting there thinking, okay, this thing's going to turn but the turn ends up taking longer. And then, you know, something that's down 90% can still go down another 90%. You know, that happens, that can happen. So uh, you don't want to buy a position, throw your whole wad in or your allocation that you wanted to allocate to oil stocks. And then the thing goes down 20%, then you're bummed out and you sell. And, you know, then the thing a year later, you look at it and things double or triple that, that happens. So uh, you're not going to catch the exact tops or bottoms. Just get that through your head now. I tell the story about Bitcoin, the last bubble in Bitcoin. You know, it topped out at what, 19, 20,000? I don't remember. That's when I started this channel, when I was riffing on uh, how it was a bubble back then and people should get out. You know, people were buying credit cards. That studying these bubbles, studying sediment, studying what goes on in the media, studying what people say on social media. You can use Google Trends, for example, it's one of the tools I use. That can help you decide when to sell. You know, when you go and everybody and his brother is talking about buying Bitcoin and these guys, these people don't know anything about anything. That's that's a bubble. The, I mean, who else is going to buy after this putts? I mean, the dumbest person in the world that doesn't know anything about investing. I mean, nothing against Uber drivers. If you get in an Uber and he's talking about buying oil stocks, you probably should reconsider. What's this guy know about oil stocks? He might be the one guy that knows what he's talking about. But you know what I'm talking about. You go, you know, that's what was happening. You go to thanks. It was right around the holidays too. I remember when that happened, you know, and you go to a part, you go to your holiday and you know, the, the, the goofy cousin or your ex brother-in-law who wears the suit, who wears the jacket from one suit, the pants from another is telling you how much money he's making in Bitcoin. That should ring alarm bells in your head. This guy doesn't know anything. So you got to look for those kind of clues. It's kind of more of an art than a science. And there's books out there. Humphrey Neal's book, The Art of Contrary Thinking. You should be reading these things. You should be educating yourselves about bias and about market history and what indicates of a bubble. You know, we're talking, everybody's, you know, dunking on Kathy Woods and ARK Investments down huge. Of course it is. Of course it is. She was riding the wave of the FOMO and all the stoops that don't know anything. But she's no different than Gerald Tazai back in the uh, go-go uh, nifty 50 days. It's the same thing. 
History repeats. The actors just change. The play stays the same, guys. The script never changes. What, you don't think we've had bubble? We had, bu you know, we had in the tech bubble, we had Henry Blodgett. We, the same thing happens over and over and over. The, the, you just got to study it. And that's how you become uh, knowledgeable and understanding when you can recognize when something, the sediment is too bullish and it's time to start scaling out. Now, getting back to my Bitcoin story, I've told this many times. I was buying Bitcoin, a couple hundred dollars, whatever, messing around with it, adding to it, blah, blah, blah. I think uh, I was mining some Bitcoin with somebody just as an experiment. We were messing around with it. And, uh, you know, I think it topped out at, I think it got to like 4,500. And I said, this is a complete bubble. I'm out. Now, we, some of the positions I have were up, you know, 10, 20 times. You're, were you going to get upset because it went up 10 or 20 times? But I didn't know what the exact top was going to be. It was so frothy even at that level. And then it subsequently went on to 20, you know, 20 grand. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't do it like you can't get upset. So I scaled out. I'm happy. I paid my taxes and I moved on to other things. All that money got recycled into uranium stocks. So, you know, here we are. You know, we're at the beginning of this. Uh, you know, what I think is going to be a tremendous bull market in uranium stocks, which has started. So, anyways, I kind of jumped around a little bit like a frog on a lily pads, jumping back and forth. But I think you get the gist of what I'm saying. I've talked about this before. And this is really directed to a lot of you young guys and newer people that are listening or new subscribers. Don't just, don't get like overly excited. You can scale into these positions. These are, these are things that are going to play out over some time, 18 months, two years, this commodity deal. And it's nothing just to take your whole wad and throw it in tomorrow because John said, I mean, don't do that. I'm giving you ideas that you should research more. And then you have to make the final decision. I'm not trying to cop out and take responsibility. I have a tremendous burden getting on here, talking to people and trying to educate people. And I think about, you know, when, when the newsletter first came out, it was not doing well because we, we was a lot of contrary positions in oil and gas. I made, a, I made a call on offshore oil drillers and most of them went bankrupt. A lot of them were down, you know, 90%. You know, but I didn't have all my capital in them, okay? And, you know, I don't, you know, I lost money on that, but other people, you know, lost money on that because they followed, they were listening to what I was talking about. So there's a burden there. But like I said, in the end, if you, you know, I'm getting stoked about offshore oil again, because they've all went through bankruptcy. They're, they're, they're rationalizing their businesses. They're coming out stronger. That's a whole nother story. That's a whole nother video, but it, you see what I'm saying? So you really got to take responsibility which is, you know, you're being told by everybody in media, academia, government, that you don't have to take responsibility. But in this game, you will. This is one of the last pure meritocracies left. You either get, you either get it done or you don't. You either know what you're doing or you don't. And if you know what you're doing, you get rewarded. If you don't, you'll be shining someone's shoes. That's just how it is in this business. All right. I just wanted to show this. You know what my feelings are on the disease that cannot be mentioned. Um, maybe it's not funny because a lot of people have died, but a lot of people die from smoking every year too, 400,000. But I wanted to point this out because there's so much media hype around this and so many people are scared. I mean, it boggles my mind when I see somebody driving around with a mask in their vehicle and no one else is in the vehicle with them. It's like, what is this person thinking about? And I thought this was kind of instructive here. You have this 
you know, looks like this typical young lady here with a little backpack and she's probably walking around Pennsylvania, Amish country. She's got a mask on outside. And, you know, this is kind of a joke. I'm sure this wasn't the conversation. She's probably asking about butter or where they sell rocking chairs around there. But anyways, you know, she's saying like, why isn't COVID affecting you people? And the dude says, the Amish dude says, we don't have TV. I mean, it's a lot of this is agate prop, right? Soviets used to be accused of this and agitation propaganda, you know, and I didn't think propaganda would be as effective in a country like the United States, but I guess I was wrong, especially on this deal. I mean, they really have a lot of people scared out of their minds. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny because they lifted the requirement here in Texas for masks, but of course all the stores, you know, I think it comes down to CYA, kind of like uh, Louis Gov was talking about. A lot of this is CYA, right? You don't want an employee working at Walmart or Target to get COVID because the store, you know, got rid of masks, then the person sues the company. I think that's what a lot of it is. But the fatigue among average people, they're just tired of this, or they just go along with it, so they don't, you know, uh, get frustrated, you know, frustrated. And I think that, uh, you know, as time goes on, the the willingness to go along with this is going to decrease. But I thought it was kind of funny, right? I mean, turn off your TV. If you're listening to CNN or Fox or, I mean, that's just, it's all propaganda. It's all biased reporting. And, uh, you know, I find that if I really want to find out what's going on in the U.S., I kind of like look at media stories from outside the U.S. It's kind of interesting. You'll notice that uh, people that cover the United States from Europe or Asia probably have a different uh, view on things than people here. So anyway, uh, I just thought this was kind of humorous. I found this amusing. Okay, this is really great news, guys, for what we're talking about, uranium. I want to get back on this uranium thing. So China, you know, they have these five-year plans. It's a, you know, it's a communist country, right? It's, yes, they have uh, capitalism. Uh, people can get rich and it's, it's glorious to get rich and all that. But in the end, it's still a, a command and control type situation. So when the Chinese government comes out with a five-year plan, you know, you're, they can get things done because everybody's got to comply with it. So it's from an article. I will attach a link to it in the show notes. Uh, but uh, basically, the nation will promote the construction of coastal nuclear power plants and aims to have 70 gigawatts of generation capacity by 2025. That's four years from now. From about 50 gigawatts at the end of last year. That's almost a 50% increase, guys. According to the latest five-year plan presented Friday to China's annual National People's Congress, that would equate to about 20 new reactors. And uh, we know that uh, a one gigawatt reactor probably uses, I think, around a half million pounds of uranium, a little bit more than a half million pounds of uranium a year. And the initial loadout is three times uh, the uh, loadout of uh, the annual use. So uh, again, uh, I said this before, you know, after Fukushima, China put a moratorium on construction. They were still building the reactors they had under construction, but they reevaluated their designs and all their construction techniques. But uh, that, you know, they opened that back up. Uh, I like this thing here, too, because I want to point this out. The fact that the nuclear sector's future is being laid out in fine detail, unlike some of the alternatives, including solar and wind, that's very important. You know, everybody touts here in the West, oh, China, 
one of the biggest uh, wind and solar. Yeah, they are. They have because they have a huge industry. And guess where we buy a lot of our solar panels from and where we get a lot of our wind components from China. So they're selling us a less diverse or less. Uh, uh, what do you call it? A less uh, concentrated type of power. We're sucking it all in sending our money to them. We're not manufacturing these things in the United States because of the cost. They're selling it to us. In the meantime, they're buying nuclear and they still tout it. I mean, you'll hear people on the left here, oh, China, they're, they're leading the world, but they don't really set any real goals or really do anything. I mean, if you go to endofcoal.org, you can see all the coal plants that are still being built there and being planned. And you just see this, and this is concrete. I always watch what people do and I don't put any stock into what they say. It only matters what someone does, not what they say. And they, you know, they understand base load and they understand that they need to have base load power and, uh, you know, for the electricity demand that's going up. It also reflects the new impetus behind the sector after a three-year freeze on plant approvals that ended in 2019. That's what I mentioned earlier. And uh, that was lifted. So what you're seeing here is, what I think is interesting is this continual bifurcation between the West and East uh, where the West has went cuckoo uh, with the ESG and uh, we're going to run everything off, uh, you know, intermittent power that's less concentrated. You know, these energy transitions that they're talking about having, we've had before, we've had energy transitions before. They don't happen in a year or two years. They take decades. And uh, I think what we're going to find out is, is that it's not going to work out like people think. And why we would self-destruct ourselves for these mandates. You know, I, I, what's going to happen in five years? You know, China, India, Russia, a lot of the emerging markets in the East, in Asia, they're not going to comply. They're not going to go along. So what's the EU and the U.S. going to do? The EU and U.S. are bankrupt, old, from a demography thing. They're losing their stature in the world, eroding politically, socially, morally, economically every year while the East is on the rise. And we're going we're gonna to wag our finger at them or we're going to threaten them uh, in the UN. What, I mean, what are we going to do? Have sanctions against them? I mean, I don't understand what, what, what the plan is. They're not going to do what we're doing. We're putting ourselves behind the eight ball and we're going to fall behind. And they're going to get rich off selling us the means to our own economic suicide. You know, there has never been an energy transition in the history of the world that's went from a concentrated form of power to a less concentrated form of power. The energy transitions have went from a, a power source or a fuel source that was less concentrated to a more concentrated, okay? And, and I don't know what we're doing. Uh, so, you know, I've talked about this before. I'm kind of getting on my soapbox again. I'm trying not to do that as much around this because I'm trying to stick to the Heads we win, tails we win more investment thesis around this. You know, it doesn't really matter what John thinks or any of you think. Uh, politically, this is what the West is going to do. They're going to force it. I mean, there's reports now in the, in the media. I, I, I could have put them up here, but, I, I, you know, I'm hearing more and more. That some city in California now has banned any, you know, gas stations in the city. Okay. I mean, you can force everybody to buy an electric car, but, you know, we'll see how that works out. You can force everybody to use solar and wind. The government can mandate this. 
And it goes back to the, like I said, the conversation I had with Malcolm Rawlingson a long, long time ago when I started the interview series. What's going to change this nonsensical, stupid way of thinking is the cost is going to go up and the pain is going to be there. You know, it was painful for a lot of people here in Texas, you know, when they lost power for a week some, in some cases. People died. Now, I'm not going to get into that whole story again, but you're going to expect to see more of that. And as economic activity contracts over time, because you need energy to power industry and things like that, that's an input price. And if you raise the price of energy, it makes it more difficult to compete with people around the world who you are competing with in other countries if their energy costs are lower. That's another advantage you give them uh, that you shouldn't. But uh, we'll see how it plays out. Like I said, our goal is heads, heads we win, tails we win more. And this is a perfect example, right? What's our thesis around uranium? Supplies going down. Demand's going up. Here you go. More demand. You know, and China is perfecting their designs to the point where they're going to, they're, they're exporting their designs. I think I just read of a Chinese designed reactor in Pakistan that just went critical this week. So rest of the world's moving in this direction and we're, going in a different direction but there's you know we're going to catch them coming and going i wanted to put this out you know i'm a big uh, advocate of gold we've had interest rates really going up we've talked about real rates before what's this chart showing okay so you have the light blue line is u.s cpi inflation okay and the dark blue line is the ISM composite or the purchasing managers index, whatever you want to say. It's basically an indication of manufacturing and uh, economic activity. And what you see is, is that uh, typically what happens is, is that as the ISM, as economic activity increases, uh, you start to see the inflation rate increase, which makes sense, right? Because as industry uh, ramps up, the ability for uh, prices to be passed on, that lags, right? And we've seen in the past when this ISM uh, number here, you see how bad the inflation rate's lagging. This is always gonna lag, right? This is gonna take off first. And then as the statistics come in on a, you know, one, two, three month lag from the government, this, this, this should follow. And we've seen that in the past, right? So what we can expect to see is this is back to rates like around 2008. Remember when oil was $148 a barrel, um, when economic activity was really high right before the uh, great financial crisis. Yeah, this is the uh, tech bubble. You see that uh, things were ramping up here. The inflation rate goes up. And so what typically happens as inflation increases, we know that interest rates are usually raised by the Fed to you know, take the punch bowl away to dampen economic activity to get inflation under control. But what the Fed has said is that they're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates and that they're willing to let the inflation rate run hotter. And so what we've seen recently is the market-based rates like the 10-year uh, treasury have are moving higher in anticipation because they see this real-time data also. The bond market sees that, the traders in the bond market, they see that economic activity is taken out. They know this. The bond market traders are very smart. They're typically way smarter than people that trade equities. 
And they know that in the past, when they see this, that they can expect inflation to go up. And so that means that they need to price bonds lower and uh, the rates need to go up. But the Fed now is getting them, this is part of that, you know, Fed getting themselves into this quandary. They can't really raise rates on the short end uh, because if they do, that's kind of going against what they said, which was they weren't going to raise they weren't going to raise rates for a long time. So they've created they've painted themselves into a corner. We've talked about this before, and so what's happened is gold's really pulled back because real rates have went down. Why interest rates have went up, but the inflation rate, as you can see here, is lagging because the the, the new information hasn't come in yet. And as it comes in over the next couple of months, you'll see this number move up. Uh, you know. We can expect to see maybe four three and a half, four percent inflation this year. Okay. And when we do, you know, the the real rates will get progressively negative. And that's when I suspect gold will take off. What do I think will be the catalyst for the gold reversal and move higher? I think as rates move higher on the long end, the Fed, a lot of analysts are saying this, and maybe I'm wrong, but they can't let rates get too far out of control. They're going to have to come in with yield curve control, and they can do that by buying up as many treasuries as they need to. Now, that will be negative for the dollar, and that will be a signal to gold and other commodities that they'll just go on a rip, roar, and rally. So um, I don't know what they're going to do. We'll see. Uh, it's impossible to know with certainty, but they I'm just going on what they said. If they don't do that, if they turn around and say, yes, we're going to get serious about inflation, and we're going to raise rates sooner than we told everybody, the stock market will go down 30 or 40% like quick i'm not saying a crash but they've painted themselves in the corner with these markets if they they're damned if they do damned if they don't now they have said in the past that they are going to let inflation run hotter but they were talking maybe you know two and a half maybe three percent i don't think they were expecting four or five percent or maybe even higher inflation which we could see over the next year 18 months uh we'll see what happens but i suspect as the as these as these states open up as the pent up demand comes off, um, as we see uh, all this savings that people have get unleashed into the economy because they've been basically imprisoned in their homes for a year, you're going to have a tremendous surge in the economy in the second and third quarter, and we could see prices go through the roof. And that's just worldwide also. I mean, if you look at like some of the booking data around vacations, some of these resorts are sold out already this summer. I mean, it's, you know, we've talked about this in the past. A lot of the airlines are already booked up. You can't get flights this summer. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. We'll have to follow this. But I suspect that's kind of the thesis that I'm working from now is that as, you know, as the 10-year gets closer to 2%, they're going to have to come out with a statement and say they're going to, you know, hold rates uh, to, you know, and that will be the that will be the signal to the gold market that okay well if you're going to lock down the long term rate on the ten year and inflation's running three or four percent then the real rate of interest is negative and everybody we've talked about that enough where everybody knows what that means but I wanted to show this because this is really what's happening and you could see in the past I mean everything repeats like I've said and you could see that at this particular ISM reading and this thing's screaming higher I mean it's not like rolling over yet. I mean, what if we get back to, you know, these levels, like in 2005, you could, you know, inflation over 4%, you know, in 2008, you had inflation pushing over 5%. If we were to see that now, and they had yields locked at, uh, you know, 2% on the 10 year on yield curve control, you'll have a negative 3% uh, real rate of an real 
interest rate and gold will be well, it'll make all time highs. So something to keep, keep in mind. Wanted to talk about this. OPEC shocked the market this week, uh, said that they were going to hold their cuts in place. Um, and I wanted to show this. Why are they doing that? Well, they want to, I think they want to test and see what's going to happen. I kind of, we kind of got, you know, finally it went our way, right? I mean, we've got double clutched by OPEC and Donald Trump on these oil markets over the last few years. But this kind of gives you a good idea, I think, where OPEC's thinking. I mean, these are the break-even oil prices that the various OPEC members need to balance their budgets, right? To get a physical break-even for, uh, and here's the big players, right? Saudi is right here, $78 a barrel. Russia, 71. And on Brent, we're pushing that, right? We're getting close to that. So I think they want to test it. They want to see how far they can push the market up. Another thing that's going to contribute, I think, to the oil rally is a lot of the oil sands um, producers in, in Canada are taking their maintenance outages over the next 30 to 45 days. And so you're going to see Canadian heavy oil down by about a half a million barrels per day for the next month or so. That should, that should put wind, that should keep the oil price elevated. You can see the inventories continue to work down lower. And I think we really want to see how shale responds. Does drilling increase? Do frack spreads increase? And will the shale guys maintain their discipline? Now we're seeing the rig rates starting to creep up, but still insufficient really to even keep hold production even. So, so far so good on that front. We'll just have to see how it goes. You know, if oil gets to a certain level, money will come back into the patch and you will see drilling increase. But there's a lag to that too. You just don't flip a switch and increase oil production. It would take a good year to uh, at elevated drilling rates to, to make a difference. So something to watch. I think this is, has a lot to do with it though. You could see, you know, $75, $80 a barrel is what a lot of the big players in OPEC are gonna need to uh, see for their, you know, 95 is the average. Um, you see Iraq and Iran are even higher. Uh, forget about Venezuela. I mean, it's a basket case, but that's kind of an outlier. But this is really that, you know, $80 is what I'm saying for next year, 70 this year and 80 next year or higher. So we'll see. Uh, this is a tweet this week by our uh, friend of the show, Trader Ferg. Um, he was talking about, I'll put a I think I have a link to the article that I was reading about this also. I will put it out, you know, fire, he's talking about BP, you know, BP is going to go green again. They've already did it once. Remember when they changed from British Petroleum, maybe 20 years ago to beyond petroleum and then oil prices went up. So they've kind of forgot about their renewables and beyond petroleum. They got back into petroleum. Now they're getting out again because of ESG and they're scared of the Twitter mob. And so what did they do? They've, they've sold, they sold a lot of their properties or some of their properties at fire sale prices. And then they overpaid, they're overpaying for these offshore wind assets. And I like what he said here, this is the most efficient way to destroy shareholder value I've ever come across. And he's quoting from one of the articles, BP 12, 1.5 gigawatt UK offshore wind leases in February by bidding almost double the amount fetched by similar sized leases at the same sale. So this is what happens, right? This is, this is contrarianism. This is what you should be watching. This is a company that's completely converged by the left wing, by the Twitter mob, by the ESG movement, by wanting to, you know, get the accolades, get a plaque from the prime minister and everybody tell the CEO how wonderful he is 
and what are they doing in the meantime? They are an oil and gas company. That's what they should concentrate on, and they should tell everybody to go pack sand. But they're not going to do that. And what they've done is, you know, they're going to sell things that they are good at for cheap, and then they are going to buy things that they know nothing about at two times uh, and pay twice as much. And when oil goes to 100 or $150 a barrel in several years, which I think it will, they'll get rid of all, just like they did before. They've been through this cycle before. They'll they'll quietly get out of the renewable business or scale it tremendously back and they'll be back in paying, overpaying for probably the, some of the same properties that they sold. I mean, you can almost write a book about this. This is the cyclicality Then you throw in politics and it just makes being a speculator so juicy. Okay, this, you know, this title of the slide, The Stupid It Burns. What is this? You, okay, this is from uh, Deutsche Bank. Uh, U.S. retail investors plan to put a significant chunk of any forthcoming stimulus into the stock market. I mean, really? Please stop it. Stop it, guys. Please don't put stimulus checks in the stock market. I mean, really? And who's doing it? By age group. Here you go. Here's, here's, here's where a lot of the proportion of people that are 18 to 24, 40% of them are going to put the money in the stock market, 25 to 34. That's our audience here listening. 50% of the people in this age group are planning on putting any stimulus checks into the market. And of course, you know, people with that have on the lower uh, income scale are involving themselves in this. And here's another thing that really gets me. Here's the experience level. Investment experience, less than 12 months, 43%. Yep, chasing the shiny object. Can't, seeing everybody else around them get rich and they're not, it's easy, right? Because stocks only go up. And it's, you know, it's like, I've been watching these videos on YouTube about um, like these guys that do like on Rue bets and stuff. They play these games and that's kind of what Robin Hood. I mean, they're, they're betting these huge sums of money in blackjack. I mean, $10,000 a hand. They're putting it on YouTube. These crazy games they have on there. I mean, they're entertaining and stuff, but that's, you know, in the end, you lose money when you gamble. The house always wins. And if you're in this cohort and you're planning on taking your stimulus check and put it into the stock market and you have less than 12 months, I mean, if you're in this thing right here where you don't have any experience, uh, you're just gambling. And like I said, when you're gambling, the house ultimately always wins. Wanted to talk about this tweet. So basically, this is a, let me explain this. This is year-to-date return. This is the uh, year. This is every, this is the charts for every um, year going back to 1973 for the uh, returns for the S&P Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, Okay. And what we're showing here is this is this year, and basically it's the second best start for commodities, you know, with uh, talking about the uh, S&P Goldman Sachs index since 1973. And I expect that that's going to continue. But this gives us a good guide, right? What could, what could we expect in a typical good year is to see this index up 40, maybe 50%, right? And we're on track if we're on the second best start, you know, um, with all the tailwinds we have around all the money creation and some of the undersupply dynamics, you know, we could conceivably see, you know, if this thing goes up, if the GSCI goes up 40 or 50% in one year, uh, a lot of the underlying commodities and uh, distill it down further to the commodity stocks that are produce those commodities could be up hundreds of percent. So I wanted to point this out. 
Um, everybody's talking about a super cycle. This kind of confirms what's going on. Um, commodities across the board, raw commodities, industrial commodities, a lot of commodities that are traded on exchanges, everything's up double digits. And uh, I don't know, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but uh, right now, everything is going in our direction. Okay, uh, that's it for this week, guys. Uh, I hope you got something out of this. Appreciate it. Like I said, um, keep the questions and comments coming. Uh, new subscribers, you know, we appreciate you coming on. And like I said, I do this for you guys. Uh, yes, it's basically to market my newsletter. But I think a lot of good information gets put out here. A lot of, uh, I get a lot of good emails, a lot of um, direct mail or direct messaging on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, guys. Uh, you get on my Twitter feed, you'll start running into a lot of smart people that are way smarter than me. And you can start getting that education that you need to be successful in these markets. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.